Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My guest today is Shane Arut, and this week we're going to discuss some fascinating part of Russian and also Ukrainian history, which is the Cossacks. And of course, as always, I ask the historian, how did you get involved in studying the Cossacks? When I was doing my MA, uh, I had to. I did an, M- an MA on the Russian Revolution and Civil War, and I had to. Um, pick a subject for a dissertation. So the, uh, at the time when I was looking for a subject, I happened to be reading uh, Mikhail Sholokov's novel about the Cossacks during the Civil War, uh, Tiki Don. In, uh, in English, it's translated as Quiet Flows the Don. And this was an account of the Cossacks just before the First World War, down to the end of the Civil War. And it was that that decided me to write about the Cossacks during the Civil War. So uh, that's how I became interested in, in them. It was a long time ago. Uh, as I say, it was when I was doing my MA in the 1980s. And I stuck with them for many years after that. I then went on to write my doctorate at Oxford uh, on, the, um, on the Cossacks. I published a couple of books on them uh, and you know, several articles. Uh, I'm now working on other things, but it's still a, a big interest for me, and I always remain fascinated by them. Uh, um, but do we not have, have an, an idea where the Cossack came from? Where, where they are? They, are they kind of where, 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 where did they emigrate from, and where, where did they choose to to stay in what area of Europe are they? In? Um, yeah, this is one of the big. Uh, I suppose, debates in Cossack history, where do they come from? Uh, because if we start with their name, for instance, Cossack, it's just a translation of the, uh, the word in, used in Russian for them, which is Kazakh. Um, and, but that word isn't, uh, isn't a Russian word. It's not Slavic. It's actually Turkish in origin. Uh, and that gives us a clue to their identity, to where they actually came from. Because... Um, Kazaki existed, uh, I suppose, in the Middle Ages, you could say, uh, in the Great Steppe. The steppe is this grasslands that stretches from uh, the Hungarian plain in the west to the um, Great Wall of China in the east, more or less. It's an enormous flatlands, grasslands. And over the centuries, you know, nomadic peoples have crossed, crossed the steppe from east to west and from west to east. I mean, if you think of all the great invasions in in European history from, um, you know, the Huns, uh, the Avars, uh, the Mongols, uh, Magyars, all of these people have moved across the steppe uh, westwards, uh, you know, through what is today Russia and sometimes deep into Europe. The Mongols actually reached uh, as far as Hungary uh, before they decided to turn back uh, in the... uh, 12th century? No, 13th century, sorry. Um, So um, the Kazaki uh, comes from this steppe society, from nomadic, the nomadic peoples of the steppe. what they were essentially. They were they were like other Slavic people, were they? Not in the beginning, they weren't. They were Turkish people, they were nomadic peoples. And what was different about them was that um they were essentially mercenaries. They offered, they were uh, men who basically didn't want to accept, uh, you know, the normal nomadic way of life. They preferred to live as soldiers selling their services to whoever could pay for them. So um, that was what the original uh, Kazaki were. They were Turkish nomads or Turkic nomads, perhaps I should be more specific. 
and uh, they were basically uh, a form of mercenaries. Uh, Timur, the great conqueror, uh, Tamerlane, as he's better known in English, began his life as one of these members of one of these Cossack bands, basically Kazaki. And uh, he rose obviously to you know, be a figure of world significance. Um, so these were an essential part of steppe life, these Kazaki, these soldiers uh, of fortune. And as the, um, the, particularly as the Mongols moved west, in, as you know, they conquered Russia in the, uh, or the land that we now think of as Russia in the 13th century. Um, the, um, they set up a, a state uh, on the, uh, in the steppe, uh, the Kipchak Khanate, it's sometimes called the Golden Horde. Uh, and the Kazaki sort of appeared with them as well. And what they did essentially was um, they carried on offering their services to whoever paid for them. So sometimes it was the Kipchak Khanate, sometimes it was Muscovy, sometimes it was even the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Uh, they weren't fussy about who they fought for as long as they were paid. And, and yeah, I mean, that was a mercenary life in general, though, as whoever paid highest and, you know, where they would go with them. Yes, yes. So, that, that, I mean, they weren't fussy. And, and if it meant fighting, you know, against uh, other Turkic peoples, um, didn't matter. I mean, it was just a job. Uh, so that's where the original Kazaki came from. And what starts to happen with the um, with the sort of Slavic peoples of the steppe is that um, gradually they start to move southwards uh, into the steppe, that they begin to uh, come into contact with um, these bands, these Kazaki, and some of them join them. Uh, they become, you know, they adopt that way of life, hiring themselves out, um, joining up with other bands that exist in the steppe. You can imagine that these people are very, uh, you know, they're not ordinary people. There's something different about them. They're, uh, they want a life of excitement, of adventure. They don't want to sit on a farm, you know, making a living that way. They want something different. So they move from the borders of Muscovy and from, say, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. They, they had no desire in forming their own empire, having a capital, that sort of thing. They, they what? Sorry, could you repeat that? They, they, they didn't have any desire in forming their own empire or no. having their capital or kind of like the some others, rest of the civilized Western world. But they no, they didn't. What they did was they went into the steppe lands, this sort of empty zone, uh, and decided to make their living there. I mean, they became very good horsemen. They were uh, like the steppe nomads. They were extremely skillful cavalry. They lived, uh, they were tough, they were resourceful. You know, they were well able to look after themselves. And basically they lived in small groups, uh, attached themselves to uh, small groups and lived by banditry, by uh, sometimes hunting and fishing they could sell or sometimes hiring themselves out. Uh, over time, in the sort of area, the two great centers of Cossack settlement, which were on the River Don, in um, you know, who would go on to become the, uh, the Russian Cossacks, and uh, on the River Dnipro, the, the Zaporozhian Cossacks, the ones who go on to become the Ukrainian Cossacks. They're the two original Cossack settlements as we know them. Uh, but as I say, they didn't aspire to you know be an empire. What they wanted was to um, to live a Cossack life, uh, serving whoever paid them. Uh, were, were they more or gypsies in a way? Well, you can think of them as nomads in a sense, a nomadic, you know, that they, they followed the nomadic lifestyle. Um, originally, they didn't have women in their settlements. They didn't want any women there. It was to be a completely male um, community, a warrior uh, community, a band of brothers. Uh, that's how they lived. Uh, on their settlements in the Don and on the Dnieper. Um, over time, by the sort of, uh, by the 16th century, you start to get a beginnings of an organized political community on both the Don and the Dnieper. That's the, um, the Cossacks, they would, uh, they had an assembly which decided all their great matters. They elected a leader, an Ataman on the Don or a Hetman in Ukraine. Uh, on the Dnieper, uh, so they had a, a structure in place by usually by the mid 16th century. There was a sort of organised community there, 
and, and they decided um, the policy of each Cossack army or host, as it was known. So, where do we get the sources, especially of the earlier history? Because it's the way it sounds to me, it doesn't sound like they were quite literate. But <laughs> the, the history is oral, orally, or is it? So, travel take how much travel do we have to take? Kind of with a grain of salt, the, or especially early his, early history from Cossacks, or does it mostly come from Western sources? No, they, they appear in both Russian uh, or. Uh, Ukrainian, Polish sources and and Western sources as well. Travelers there mentioned them. Um, in they appear in the Russian chronicles first. In um, I think the first mention of them is in fourteen forty four, um, when the um, the chronicle just reports that they were part of a, um, the army of a Russian prince, the uh, the prince of Ryazan, uh, which was a frontier town at that point. Uh, who were pursuing some uh, Tartar uh, bandits into the steppe. So um, that, that's the, type, the first earliest mention that we have of them. But they appear fairly frequently in the chronicles uh, after that. Um, you know, and as I say, European travellers write about them uh, quite a bit as well. They mention them uh, quite often. So, you know, although we don't have an enormous amount of material about them, there is quite a substantial amount and enough to make sort of um, some conclusions about their origins, the development of their community um, and, and their beliefs. But there's nothing like internal sources from... Very few, actually. They, they do start to emerge, but it's, it's at a later period. I, I think it's probably uh, towards... You know, it must be in the 18th century that, you know, that they start to write, you know, produce uh, information about themselves. Um, but because, as you say, for a long period, you're dealing with an illiterate community by, by and large, that when they need to communicate with surrounding states, they had scribes who would write letters for them. They would, um, uh, you know, send requests, uh, give answers to uh, diplomatic missions uh, and so on, um, but in the sense that they that people there actually wrote about their own lives, um, that doesn't just start appearing until the 18th century. I would think at the earliest. How do, how did the Western world and Western slash Russian world view the Cossacks? Did they view them as barbarians, or did they did they just view them as kind of a useful? that needs necessity. Yeah, the image varied. Um, quite often they were the, the embodiment of Russian savagery, of barbarism. They were seen as, um, you know, uh, when, they, when the Russian armies advanced into Europe, in, like in the Seven Years' War, for instance, you know, the Cossacks became famous for their, uh, how much they looted, how much they robbed. I mean, all soldiers at the time robbed and looted, but apparently the Cossacks were particularly noted for it. Um, you know, so on the one hand, they were seen as this barbarian force. On the other hand, they were often portrayed as noble savages as well, these sort of heroic fighters. Uh, it, it largely depended on the state of relations with Russia at the time. So during the Napoleonic Wars, to the British, they appeared as these great sort of heroes chasing um, chasing Napoleon uh, back across Europe. Uh, to the French, of course, they were barbarians uh, and they were a figure of terror because as during the ret Napoleon's retreat from Moscow, Cossacks, you know, uh, were part of the forces that continually harassed the Grand Armée as it retreated. So, um, as I say, they, they moved between these two visions of the Cossacks as, you know, as terrible savages or as, um, you know, a romanticised view of them as these free, um, as the noble savage, I suppose. So it depended very much on the state of affairs between Russia and whichever country was writing about them. Do we have an idea what the Cossack camp could look like? Was it like a tent or was it like a little tree house? Not tree house, but a little house uh, kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of, I think kind of more or less Mongolian kind of house. Well, it, it, the original ones, as far as we can tell, what there was was a stockade 
a, a few huts in which everybody slept. Um, and um, that was about it, really. There wasn't, it wasn't terribly sophisticated. I can't imagine it being very comfortable. But the, the host, the Cossacks uh, wouldn't stay there the, uh, the entire year. They would, um, uh, when they were on campaign, when they were um, um, at war with, uh, with somebody, obviously they dispersed, they weren't there. They would come together uh, once or twice a year to sort of sort out the great problems of the host, to elect leaders. Um, so they didn't need a particularly uh, sort of sophisticated urban centre for what they did. Um, and the, um, in Ukraine, uh, the Zaporozhian Cossacks, their main headquarters was an island in the middle of the river. And it was surrounded by rapids and whirlpools that made access to it extremely difficult. You, had to, you couldn't do it by boat. You had to get out of a boat and thread your way on foot through the rapids which was very dangerous. So it made it very easy to defend. Um, on the Don, they, um, there were several centers, but eventually they settled in the um, in Cherkask, uh, in the lower Don, which was, um, you know, again, very far. Uh, it was hard to get for people who didn't know the place. It was easily to, easy to defend. Um, so uh, they became the sort of two centers of Cossack power. But again, they weren't particularly um, sophisticated cities that were fairly rough and ready. So what kind of weapon were the preferred use for Retrosat? Cossacks, uh, obviously they were very skilled on a horse. They, they were like the steppe nomads. They were um, brilliant horsemen. Um, they used swords, uh, lances. Um, they, um, they also adapted very well to gunpowder. So the gunpowder revolution, they um, they were very resourceful. When we look at accounts of foreign mercenaries who were in the service of Muscovy, uh, they always wrote quite highly about the Cossacks, saying they were much better than the Muscovite troops. They were uh, more daring, more aggressive. Uh, they had far more initiative. So um, they used um, these weapons, uh, all sorts of weapons, including the most modern as well, as well as the traditional ones of the steppe nomads. So they adapted easily. Yeah. Yes, very easily. They, if you see pictures of them, they tend to look like Turks or Turkish uh, Turkish nomads. There's a great painting of uh, Ilya Ryepin, uh, the, of the Cossacks writing an insulting letter to the Turkish uh, sultan. And if, if you look at the clothes that um, they're wearing, their hairstyles, all of them are the, the hairstyles of steppe nomads. Uh, Ryepin was writing, or drew his picture, sorry, in the 19th century, but it was based on historical descriptions uh, of Cossacks uh, of an earlier period. So you can see, again, the Turkish influence on them in their weapons and in their clothes, um, uh, even in their hairstyles. Uh, you know, they adopted um, hairstyles of the Turkish nomads. Was there a sort of hierarchy in the Cossacks? Rank or was assumed they must have some form from leadership. And how would you go on about becoming a lead, sort of a leader of the Cossacks? And we will we will take a look, look at the Cossack uh, revolt later. But of course, I assume there must be some kind of leadership in the Cossacks. Yeah. Yes, there was actually, and and in the original Cossacks, uh, the leadership was elected uh, every year when they met. Uh, in either Turkask or on the um, in the Zaporozhian uh, Sich. The so it was more or less a democracy in a sense? It was a very, a system of, you know, anarchic democracy. Everybody had a vote. Everybody could choose, uh, you know, or had a, vote, a say in who was to be Ataman, leader of the, of the Cossacks. And uh, originally, basically, they chose people on the, uh, on the basis of their war experience, uh, their, their this, uh, their reputation among other Cossacks. And it was um, a very open system. Over time, that began to change. And you start to see um, a group of men um, or emerging who begin to dominate the lives of the Cossack hosts. Uh, and they begin gradually from the you know, 17th, 18th century to monopolize 
the leading positions in the host and the democratic element of the Cossacks begins to fall away at the assembly, but it takes a long time and it's quite a, a violent process as well. How violent you the death like what, are, how, what kind of violence are we talking about here? Well, if you, um, as, the, uh, as an elite begins to emerge within the Cossack community, it creates all sorts of tensions because uh, the rank and file Cossacks, the ordinary ones, are still committed to the sort of democratic and egalitarian ideals of the original Cossacks, i.e. that, you know, every, we share everything together or, um, and we elect leaders based on their ability. Uh, so when you start to get a system where an elite begins to take on a permanent form, they begin to pass on their privileges to their children, and also they begin to live substantially better than other members of the host, and then that creates enormous tensions. And um, is this inspired by the Western world that is trying to talk, hey, maybe we should adapt to this and we should try to have a nobility of our own, sort of? Well, that's essentially what happens with the, the elite's leadership. They're, they're looking for nobility. They're looking to... Uh, you know, be able to dominate and exploit the rest of the Cossacks. That happens both in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, to whom the Cossacks nominally owe obedience or allegiance, and also in the um, in Muscovy, when the you know the Don Cossacks uh, swear allegiance to the Tsar. Uh, uh, Again, which we'll come back to talk yeah. more in detail later. So, um, sorry, then tell me your question again. Sorry. Uh, did they take the nobility from from the Western Western world that it, the nobility triumph was, was inspired from them in a sense? I think it was just, um, inspired. Or did it evolve naturally? No, I mean the, the model they had was of the surrounding societies. Obviously, the elite would look at the way the Polish uh, gentry behaved and the uh, and the Muscovite gentry as well. They dominated their peasants. They had wealth. They had status, and they had power. And I suppose they gradually began to feel that they should have this too, that they should be in a similar position uh, rather than simply, you know, a Cossack who was leader for a year and then went back to being an ordinary Cossack as it had been in the beginning. So, um, I mean, the model of the societies around them was were very hierarchical and uh, status obsessed. So it's not surprising that as soon as an elite begins to emerge, they begin to see themselves in the terms of, the elites of either Muscovy or of Poland, which is the nobility. Was this more or less accepted by the other Cossacks? They did like, hey, we're not okay with this. We want, we don't no, no, go they, back to their uh, own place. There were there were many revolts in the Cossacks, uh, both in uh, in Ukraine and in Russia, um, during the time of troubles. Uh, in um, we're not talking of the Irish troubles, the Russian. No, troubles. no, this is that. Uh, in, in Russia, in the, uh, at the beginning of the 17th century, the old dynasty collapsed. And then for about 12 years, mm. uh, 14 years. Of course, after Ivan the Terrible. Yes, yes. Until the, the first Romanov. Yeah, until the election of Mikhail Romanov yeah. in 1613. Uh, well, the country was plagued by civil war, revolt, unrest, mm. foreign invasion. And the, uh, the Cossacks played a big part in that. They backed the first false Dmitri. Um, they they also took part in the revolt led by um, a slave, Ivan Balotnikov. Um, and then later on in the 17th century, uh, the, the great Cossack hero, hero Stepan Razin, uh, he exploited the tensions within the whole... He, he almost got to the capital too, didn't he? He did, actually. He led a huge revolt. He, he sailed up the Volga, uh, calling on peasants to rise up in support of him, which they did. Uh, you know, he was a real threat to the regime before he was finally defeated. Uh, but he was able to use the tensions in the host between, you know, the poor Cossacks who were his main support and, and the rich Cossacks who bitterly opposed him um, because they thought he was a threat to them. He, he came from the, the, the elite Cossacks, but he, for, some, for his own reasons, he decided to put himself forward as the leader of the poor Cossacks. And then... I suppose the um, the biggest revolt of all came in the 18th century during the reign of Catherine the Great, when uh, Emilian Pugachev, who was a Don Cossack, uh, he led 
the Cossacks of the uh, Terek River, the Yak, uh, as it was known earlier, uh, against Catherine the Great. He claimed to be the uh, murdered husband of, of Catherine yeah. the Third. Yeah. Um, but then let's talk about that now, because they do split in groups, don't they, eventually? Like the, you said, the Don Cossacks and the Ukrainian Cossacks. When did this happen? When, when did they split into these three groups? I think they they arose independently on the uh, on the steppe lands. They were never unified as one whole Cossack nation stretching from um, you know the River Dnieper in the west uh, in, into Siberia in the east. Because uh, several of them, you know, the Don and the uh, Zaporozhian Cossacks arose more or less at the same time, um, and then these Cossacks set up other settlements in other places in the river, um, the river Yak in, in uh, what's today the um, Ural Mountains. Um, there were um, Cossack communities set up on the, uh, on the Terek River in the Caucasus as well. Um, so um, there, there was never a unified Cossack uh, sort of political structure. So how how can we tell call them Ukrainian crossers and then the Don crossers and then just crossers in a sense? Sorry. What did the name kind of develop that the Ukrainian crossers? Well, when did we kind of uh, I don't I don't remember the word for to use here, but when did we classify them into Ukrainian crossers, crossers, and Don crossers? They took those names themselves, especially. Um... You know uh, the Zaporozhian Cossacks, the ones who become Ukrainian Cossacks. They they call themselves you know Zaporozhian Cossacks. The Don Cossacks call themselves Don Cossacks, and those from the Terek you know call themselves Terek. They often take the name from the river. Um, you know l- later on they become identified with either Russia or Ukraine, depending on which um, you know where where they originated from. So uh, originally, I mean, the most important thing about them was that they were Cossacks. Actually, that was the uh, the important part of their identity, uh, and then the name of the particular host that they came from. So you mentioned this earlier, but I want let's talk a little bit more about the Stenkarasin revolt. What what was the the Stenkarasin revolt, and what was the reason for the revolt in the first place? Well, the uh, the revolt seems, uh, you know, had many reasons. Firstly, um, Razin um, was a very turbulent figure. He was a charismatic leader. He'd been a successful war leader. He um, he led raids against um, the Persian Empire. The uh, very successful plundering expeditions there. Um, he um, he'd fought in wars on behalf of Muscovy. Um, and, and for whatever reason, he decided that, um, you know, he, he preferred the company of the poor Cossacks, these very turbulent uh, people rather than the elite Cossacks. Um, and he, um, as I say, he, he was able to use the tensions within the host, but also uh, tensions within Muscovite society as well. That, that's when he decided to begin his revolt. He could. Um, uh, he he wanted to use the anger of the peasants as well, who were experiencing serfdom uh, in a very harsh form uh, in, in the 17th century. He was also able to draw on uh, some of the peoples who had been conquered recently by the the Muscovite state. Some of the uh, sort of nomadic peoples as well, who uh, Turkic peoples. Uh, who'd started to come under Russian domination at that point. So he was able to uh, unify under his banner, sort of peasant unrest, uh, people angry at Russian uh, domination, imperial domination, um, and, and the Cossacks themselves. Uh, also, quite often in, in the cities, whenever a Cossack army approached, uh, the poor in the cities would try to open the gates for him to, uh, to protect yeah. or to bring him into the city because they supported Razin as well. So there was a wide sort of constituency for him to draw upon in um, when he started his great revolt. Uh, How close was it to succeed actually getting power? 
uh, he sailed up the uh, the Volga, and I think he got as far as um, Saratov uh, on, on the Volga before he was finally stopped. He's, um, he, his idea seems to have been to sail up the Volga as far as you can, as close to Moscow as possible, and then possibly, uh, you know, move inland uh, towards Moscow after that. But as I say, he was stopped uh, and, and he was forced to retreat. Uh, he was then seized by the Cossack host, the leaders of the Cossacks uh, in, on the Don, who handed him over to the Muscovites and he was executed in Red Square. Uh, he was cut, uh, he was quartered there. And, uh, but to say he became one of the great folk heroes of Russian, um, of Russian history. So I, I believe this is, I, I might be wrong here, but I believe it was the Ukrainian people who finally decided that they needed a protectorate. And what, why did they think they needed a protectorate and in the first place? Well, um, the Ukrainian Cossacks had originally um, sworn allegiance to the Polish king. Um, they, um, although they didn't always obey him, in fact, they frequently disobeyed him. Nevertheless, they, they were subjects of the, uh, the Polish king. But what happened in the 17th century was that the Polish state became more oppressive. It began to uh, crack down on the Cossacks, con- try to control them more carefully. Uh, to, to curb their sort of their turbulence, their their unrest, because they frequently engaged in revolts against the Polish state when they didn't get what they wanted. Uh, at the same time, uh, in Ukraine, you have a uh, like in Muscovy, you have an ensurfed peasantry uh, who are Orthodox uh, by religion, but their masters are, are Polish and they're Catholic. So you have a lot of discontent there. Uh, a peasant, you know, deep uh, peasants, very unhappy. Um, at the same time, uh, the Cossacks are being oppressed. And the Polish government at this point as well is trying to persecute the Orthodox faith. It's trying to uh, convince the population to become Catholic. So all these things are, are coming together. Uh, and they, uh, what brings them together into in a massive revolt um, in 1647 is uh, a Cossack called uh, Bogdan uh, Kmelnitsky. Uh, he's a relatively wealthy Cossack. Um, he's loyal to the Polish crown, but he's, uh, he's attacked by a Polish noble. His family is destroyed. And uh, as a result of that, he leads this great revolt of the Cossacks against the Polish crown. Um, yeah, but that is that I sent you a mail about this earlier, and that, but this was the one that I was referring to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but but what uh, he he then, uh, as I say, he defeats the Poles in battles, and uh, he sets up the Ukrainian Cossack state. But he ne- he knows he needs protection. Uh, it's a dangerous world that the Cossack state is unstable. It's new, uh, and he wants to ensure its survival. So he begins to look a- look around for a protector. And originally, you know, he's thinking of either the Crimean Khanate, which is in the south, obviously, uh, where the where Crimea is today, which is a sort of semi-nomadic state, or even the Ottoman Empire. He 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 would have quite liked the Ottoman Empire because one, it was powerful, but also it's quite far away, so it actually makes it um, less of a threat. But in the end, he opted for. Uh, Moscow for the protection of Moscow, so that would they would protect the uh, the Ukrainian state, the Hetmanate. In return, he swore allegiance to Moscow in return for Moscow uh, guaranteeing the privileges and autonomy of um, of the Ukrainian Cossacks of their of their state. And, and of course, I have to ask: with the current Ukrainian invasion or special military operation, as Putin calls it, is the, is this, this treaty we are talking about what he kind of refers to justify his invasion of Ukraine? It's part of it. I mean, the main justification for it is that Ukraine was once part of the lands of Kiev and Rus, the great medieval mm-hmm. state uh, of the East Slavs. That that incom- that state. Uh, covered the territory of what is now uh, Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia, uh, and so Putin uh, 
as far as I understand it, he seems to think that it's his it's his mission to recreate the, the territory of Kiev and Rus, to reunite it um, and, you know, to make it once again part of Russia, the Russian state. And again, they they also do use Russian history to, to justify this. Um, you know, they will talk about uh, Bogdan or Bogdan uh, Khmelnytsky as a uh, as a person who brought Ukraine back or started the, was part of the process of bringing Ukraine back into the Russian lands. Although well, that clearly wasn't his intention. He wanted an independent state, and he only turned to Muscovy because it seemed the best of. Uh, you know, or the least worst choice that, that he had at that point. So that forms part of it. The other um, thing that Putin uses, I mean, in Russian history, the great villain is another uh, Ukrainian Cossack called Ivan Mazepa. Mazepa uh, changes sides when the Swedes are fighting Peter the Great. He joins the Swedes. And of course, uh, you know, he's trying to protect the autonomy of the uh, Cossack state. Uh, but he becomes a great villain of Russian history, although he's a national hero in Ukraine today. So mm-hmm. seen as a great nationalist, you know, tragic figure. But one, you know, he's a hero. But I mean, I, personally, I think Putin's reason for recreating this greater part is kind of ridiculous because it's, it's like saying that Italy has the right to recreate the Roman Empire because it's like initially or was originally Roman. Half of Europe were basically Romans, and that's... That, that that should be their reasoning for recre- recreating the Roman Empire. It's kind, it's kind of it's uh, shady, if you ask me. Well, it, it is ludicrous. It, it's as if President Macron one morning woke up and and remembered that you know Germany, Holland, Belgium had all been part of the Empire of Charlemagne. Yeah, decided that he must you know it was his duty to recreate it. It's a nonsense. I mean, what happened a thousand years ago shouldn't have a determining influence on what happens today. You know exactly. So, um, yes, as I agree with you, it is a not. Um, it's preposterous. I mean, I would be all for recreating the Roman Empire, but I mean, come on. Yeah, yes, I know. It, it, it's, um, you know, um, and, and the problem is, um, you know, of course, uh, Ukrainians, uh, whether they're Russian speaking or Ukrainian speaking, you know, first and foremost, the vast majority have rejected uh, the war, you know, Putin's claims to them. And, you know, that's why it's so difficult, but the Russians are finding it so difficult in Ukraine at the moment, uh, is because the population as a whole reject mm. uh, Putin's claims over them. Yeah. And, um, of course, you have to talk about what, what was the life of Cossacks in Ukraine under, we don't back in time, not in the current, but when, when they've signed the Treaty of Moscow, I don't try to, you said this before we started recording, I'm going to try to say it right. They what was it like in the Russian influence for the Cossacks and the Ukrainian people? What they, um, what the Cossacks wanted uh, was to create, uh, say, their own independent state uh, in which they would, um, yeah. they acknowledged the authority of Moscow, but lived according to their own rules and, you know, and were free to, um, to organize their lives. What, what you have in the next hundred years is the continual pressure on them by, uh, first of all, the Muscovite state, and then when it becomes the empire during the reign of Peter the Great, of imperial Russia. And as I say, there's this relentless pressure in which the promises made to the Cossacks under the, in the Treaty of Pereyaslavl are gradually whittled away. Uh, you know, it becomes more and more uh, under the control of Russia, and eventually, uh, Catherine the Great finally abolishes the um, the state. They um, she she even destroys the Cossack settlement on the uh, uh, in the river in the Dnieper, the original settlement of the Zaporozhian Cossacks. She destroys that, and the Cossacks then are deported to um, southern Russia to an area called the Kuban. Uh, in southern Russia, and they form um, what eventually becomes the Kuban Cossacks. Uh, but that's a bit later on. I, I want to skip towards a few bits here, because we, don't, we might be skipping a few years again, but of course, the 20th century Kromenon and World War One is, of course, affecting the Cossacks as well. So what was it like for the Cossacks? And the, who, who side, who side, who side, did the side with Russia in in the world war one and how how significant were they part in 
in the in the Russian army and under World War One. Well, they become um, what we see with the Cossacks is that gradually they're brought more and more under the control of the imperial state. That um, after Pugachev in the um, in the 1780s, sorry, the 1770s, after his great revolt, there are no more Cossack revolts and nothing like what we'd seen earlier. So, um, you know, they become integrated into the Russian army, although they serve as separate units, they serve um, under peculiar conditions. They exist as a sort of, as a cavalry force. They're, uh, again, the state wants to make use of their abilities um, on a horse. And so that's what their role is in during the various wars of Russia in the 17th, sort of, or sorry, the 18th and the 19th, and even the 20th century. How, how are the Cossacks viewed at this time? By that I said earlier, we talked about if they were more or less barbarians in the in the earlier years. But how how do, does the view of the Cossacks develop under under are they looked as an as an ethnicity or are they more or less? Well, in in Europe, they're still viewed pretty much as savages, as barbarians. But but within Russia, they begin to be viewed in terms of a people who had always been loyal to the state, who served the empire, who um, fought heroically in the all the empire's wars. So I, it, it was um, um, it, it, the state, of course, paid no attention to all the great Cossack rebels. You know, it ignored them completely uh, because. That didn't fit the myth of the Cossack service to the state. So, in the uh, sort of nineteenth and twentieth century, you get this sort of version of Cossack history promoted, in which they've always been loyal servants of the Russian Empire and and the Tsars. And as I say, that's the version of history that they uh, that this imperial state wants to create and pushes very hard, you know, down to its destruction in nineteen seventeen. I mean, I don't different. I don't remember if you mentioned this, but. Are they more or less nomadic now, or are they starting to civilize, live in normal homes? Or? Yeah, what happens uh, in the 18th century? They begin a process of moving from a you know nomadic warrior lifestyle to a more settled agricultural one. They begin to use uh, settled, you know, the land of the Don territory. It's very fertile. Um, it's a lot of it is black earth region. That very fertile. Uh, part mostly Ukraine, but part of it in the Don as well. So it becomes, um, you know, they begin to leave a more settled life. They live in villages, uh, small towns, and they farm. But at the same time, they still provide a very peculiar military service to the Russian state. Um, It's sort of separate service that they're different from. uh, They're not uh, seen as peasants. They're never been serfs. Uh, so they're seen as free men, but they, 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 as I say, they provide a military service uh, for the Tsars. They have to pay for their own horse, their uniform, and um, I think cold weapons, you know, hand, uh, swords, pikes, um, lances, but the state provides firearms. The state took on, you know, so they didn't have to provide their own rifle, but everything else they had to provide. It is fascinating how how they don't really change in, over the span of the, of a century and the, the thousand years that they still are a warrior tribe even in the 1920th century that still stay on to the tradition that they had that over a thousand years ago from first they started appearing well, it, it, it's, it's probably about five 500 years but they do change they do but they do have a sense of themselves as a distinct people as a distinct group um, and there's this big argument, what exactly were they? Were they just simply a group created by the Russian state to serve its needs? Uh, you know, or were they an, an ethnic group? Were they a nation? Were, or were they something in between? Is it hard? You know, it, it's quite hard to find a category uh, to describe them because they have elements uh, of all these different groups in them. Uh, so it's not easy to categorize what they were. Um I think that they were a um, they were a separate group that they were on their way to becoming um, a, um, a, a different ethnic group, if you like. If um, if the civil war had gone on, if 
if they'd been on the winning side in the civil war in terms of if uh, it's quite possible you would have seen a Cossack nation emerge on the Don and the Kuban rivers. Um, it might not have happened, but to me, it seems quite clear that their, they, their identity is a very complicated issue. Um, and it, nobody in, in Russia today, they regard, they call the Cossacks a sub ethnos of the Russian people, which, um, you know, you have to work out, well, what does that mean? In my understanding, what it means is I think that they were beginning to set, they were separate from the normal or from a usual Russian people, the Russian ethnic identity, that they had a separate identity that, um, which is why they use a, you know, but one that was in some ways closely attached to Russia. I mean, you said that they were dissolved after the Russian Civil War, uh, but do you do still see a friend, a Russian friend of mine. I was chat, I was talking with him, and uh, he did send me photos of Russian of Cossacks, sorry, in in the Red Army, and yeah. they did serve in the World War Two. So they were completely dis- they were demolished. Were they? they? They weren't. I mean, they um, many of them fought for the in the Red Army um, during the Second World War. As some fought for the Germans as well, it was their chance to uh, to get revenge on the Soviet regime. They suffered greatly during the civil war. There was, um, you know, they were the main enemies of the Bolsheviks, their most dangerous enemies, and um, you know, many tens of thousands were were killed during the civil war. They also suffered during collectivization under Stalin when Stalin collectivized all the land in the Don. They uh, or in the Soviet Union, sorry, the Cossacks suffered very badly uh, with that. Um, and um, again, you know, I think that their communities were actually really as communities that were capable of reproducing themselves uh, vanished after the after the Second World War. Really, that um, their whole way of life was destroyed. The communities were scattered. They were killed. They were scattered. Uh, and although the memory, of course, was, I assume gulags was uh, someone ended up. I assume someone ended up in the gulag as well. I, an I awful lot, yes, would have been a uh, lot. A lot would have been executed during the terror, uh, arrested, sent to the gulag, or shot, or simply just shot. Uh, so that there was a, um, I, I think, as a as a community as I said that was capable of reproducing itself from generation to generation that really had ended by the by the end of the second world war you start to get you know um new people moving into the Cossack what were that had been the Cossack territories and and so gradually their identity it's not lost completely but um as a distinct community I think it is lost by um by the end of the second world war and that there are people today who say they're descendants of Cossacks and they call themselves Cossacks. Um, but this to me seems largely a matter of that, you know, simply they choose to call themselves that. It's... How are Russians viewing, and it's Ukraine, you said that they, some of them are national heroes, some of the Cossacks you mentioned, but how are they viewed in Russian history and Ukrainian history today as, as a people? Well, I think... It, um, they view them quite differently in Russia. They stress the the service of the Cossacks to the to the empire, its uh, its role in the wars of the Russian Empire, particularly the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, they're seen as great, you know, great sort of uh, heroes of the empire, and that's the side that the Russians stress. They don't mention or they you know don't stress the role of. Um, Pugachev or Razin in the you know as these great rebels, these leaders of the people against the state, that's all gone now in the new Russia. Uh, and instead, they they emphasize their service to the imperial state as these great patriots. Uh, in Ukraine, on the other hand, you know, they choose to emphasize, you know, uh, the fact uh, that, that the Ukrainian Cossacks, the Zaporozhian Cossacks, never accepted the authority of outsiders, that they were always in revolt against the Poles, against the Muscovites, against the Turks, you know, this sort of an indomitable people who refuse to accept alien rule. And, you know, so that the Cossacks, that side of the Cossack identity is a central part of modern Ukrainian identity, that 
you know, and it, clearly it plays very well today when they're once again, the Ukrainian people are refusing to accept, you know, rule from Moscow. So both uh, Ukraine and Moscow remember the Cossacks, but they remember them in very different ways. Those who descend, actually do descend from Cossacks today, do they view them as national pride, that they're proud of their heritage? Uh, where in uh, those who, in general, those who descend from Cossacks. yes, I think they are people who claim to be Cossacks. You know, do look back on you know uh, uh, to their past as um, you know, or as they're part of a glorious tradition. That, uh, however, they want to remember it, they see themselves as um, you know descended from from these people um, and. Um, you know, it's not something to be ashamed of. In Soviet Russia, it was difficult because the Soviet state uh, was always suspicious of the Cossacks. Mm. Uh, didn't like them. Uh, but in the present day Russia, yeah, people are proud. You can see Cossack, you know, people, uh, um, you know, in military uniform claiming to be Cossacks, you know, on horses, using sword skills, all that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, it is a matter of pride today. You, ma- you mentioned that they were skeptics of Soviet Union to the, to the Cossacks, but they do see Cossacks in, I think it's done Cossacks in the victory parade after World War II as well. Yeah, I mean, loads of Cossacks fought in the Red Army in, um, in as cavalry, actually, on the Eastern Front. Cavalry still, still had a role uh, uh, in, on the Eastern Front during the Second World War. Uh, but they also fought in tank regiments, uh, you know, and every other type of unit as well. Thank you so much for coming. If you want to learn more about the Cossacks, you can read Shane Rook's books, which I highly recommend. And I know I will. It's my list for sure. Where, where can people find your books if they, if they do want to learn more about the Cossacks? Um, Basically, Amazon is probably the best place to look. The book is just called The Cossacks, and it's... Uh, um, it's available on Amazon, or at least it was the last time I looked anyway. So um, it's a paperback, so it shouldn't be horrendously expensive. Do you have anything else you want to promote on the social media where people might find you and the links you want me to put in the description before we go? I don't think so. No, that, that's, um, that's enough. I work at the University of York in the Department of History there. I can be contacted easily enough through... Um, you know, you can find me on the university's website. So, thank you so much for coming. This has been That Age Twelve. My name is Alan. We are available on Instagram and That Age Twelve. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts. Please like, share, and subscribe. And if you are listening to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a review. That would help us out a lot. This has been That Age Twelve. And I'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.